Yo, we just made smartphones through the internet So we can stimulate brains with intellect We explode on the scene with the current street news And let niggas have it when we drop reviews Atomic is the power we cast Hard work, no play, we bomb that ass E-friend, that's my nigga, man, last name Guzman, Santa Vita, Kenny, yo, break them on, son It's I-R-S-M-M-D Complete figure fools like Ric Flair, G Live from Times Square through the airways free We don't think twice about an interview, E We save many lives with the job we do like Superman, bitch, we unstoppable Don't try to imitate, it's impossible Cause you will never overcome that obstacle Intellectual stimulation by way of mobile devices. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Atomic Podcast, coming to you live from the Upper West Side, New York City, where we blow up the news on a verbal scale. My name is Ephraim Guzman. My guest today, he's a former professional wrestler. You may have remember him from the AWA or the GWF or WCW or the WWE. I know you've seen his face a lot, and his documentary is out. You can definitely pick that up. It's called Del Wilkes, the man behind the mask. Ladies and gentlemen, the Patriot, Mr. Del Wilkes. Del, how are you doing today? I'm very good. It's a pleasure to speak to you over the phone. You had a long, illustrious career, you know, from football to wrestling. Let's just get, you know, right down started just to the wrestling. How did you come about becoming a professional wrestler? Well, I've always been a pro wrestling fan. I grew up watching Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling here in South Carolina and uh, saw my first live show at 10 years old and uh, was just blown away by what I saw that night and just fell in love with it. I uh, I had determined, um, I guess maybe before college, that whenever football was over for me, that I was going to pursue a career in professional wrestling. So uh, after the Atlanta Falcons released me prior to the start of the 86 season, I came back home to Columbia, and there was a school in Columbia that was owned and operated by Lillian Ellison, the fabulous woman, one of the great ladies uh, of all time, and so I went through her school. And uh, just worked my way up from there. Was there a lot of people in that school, in the, in the class where you was in? No, just me and one other guy <laughs> that I broke into business with. And uh, it really wasn't a school that was geared for guys. It was really more geared for girls. There had been a lot of girls that had trained and come through that school. And um, the guys that she had helped and trained me really didn't know much more than I did. Uh, but they were able to teach me the very basic, how to lock up. How to snatch a headlock, how to get an arm, uh, backdrop, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But after that, I really sort of taught myself uh, on the go. I, I learned on the fly, so to speak. Well, well Mula, was it? Was she hands on? Like, was she like involved with it, or just by name only? Very, very little involvement. Uh, very little. Uh, she basically turned it over to the guys that she had there that uh, were helping train me and my buddy. And every now and then she would come come out and, and, and you know participate and give some advice, but for the most part, very hands off. Ah, okay, okay. Did you did did you got pulled around the ringer? Did you get like you know a lot of injuries during training? No, I, I didn't. The injuries didn't come until later on in my career. Um, uh, you know, when I first started training, I was very sore because I was I just come out of football, so I was still in good shape. I was still strong, I was still very athletic, and uh, so it was an easy transition from that point, but it's just a different type of business, and so, you know, when you're learning to take bumps, and you're learning to take a back drop, and, uh, you know, you're doing different things to your body than you did in football, so uh, I was certainly sore, uh, stiff in the early beginnings of it, but my body adjusted pretty quick. 
How did you get involved? How well, your first promotion to AWA, how, what led you into there, or who brought you in? Well, um, I would run some shows around uh, the Midlands of South Carolina, just small shows, um, maybe a couple hundred people at most. Uh, and Wally McDaniel was working for the AWA. He was still working in the ring, and he was working in the office. But he still had his permanent home in Charlotte, North Carolina. So he'd come home to Charlotte for a couple of weeks, and Mula had booked him on one of her shows. And Wally saw me there, uh, took a liking to me, and uh, was instrumental in that opening that door uh, to get into the AWA. He uh, uh, introduced me to, uh, to Greg and, and Vernie Gagne, and uh, they took an interest in me and hired me and brought me up. So Wally was very instrumental in me getting that job in the AWA. Oh, and how was um the your first gimmick there was the trooper gimmick? Who gave that to you, or that's something you thought up your own? Well, one of the guys I, I actually went to work um, in the AWA is Dale Wilkes. I've been working in in Mid South uh, for Jerry Jarrett, and then um, I got a chance to go up and work for the AWA. And uh, one of the guys that helped train me at Lewis was had had a full time job as a deputy sheriff, uh, but on weekends he would work on those small shows for Mula, and he would work uh, a character called The Informer. It was basically himself during the week as a cop. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just dressed up like that as his character when he would work those shows for Mula. And he called me up and asked me if he could send me a tape, a demo tape, uh, of some of his work, and if I would pass it on to Greg, to Wahoo, to Vern. And I did. And uh, they came back to me and said, look, we're not interested in hiring the guy, but we we do like the character, and so we've come up with an idea of the trooper, and uh, we think it's something that uh, would work good for you. So, uh, hence, uh, brought the trooper. Well, I know, and, you know, watching the trooper, it was just, it was just kind of cool because it sort of fit you. I guess because I guess that's my first, you know, introduction to you. Did you have fun with the gimmick? Did you have fun doing the little ticket write-offs at the end of the matches? Oh yeah, it was fun having badges to the kids on the way to the ring, and of course writing the ticket putting it on my opponent's forehead after I've gotten my hand <laughs> raised. And, and on top of that, it was my first break in the business. This was, uh, I had an opportunity, as you were talking earlier, about that ESPN time spot uh, from 4 to 5 o'clock Monday through Fridays. So I had a chance to be on nationwide TV. And so it was really my first break in the business. And, uh, you know, it was a big deal to be on nationwide TV. Yeah, then from there you went to All Japan Pro Wrestling. Totally different environment from the strong style in Japan. Do you miss those days in Japan? Like getting, you know, impacted and, you know, feeling the brunt as, a, as opposed to the American wrestling? Well, I had, I had a very successful career. Uh, but the highlight of my career uh, are the years I've been in Japan. And I, I did two stints in, the, uh, in, in All Japan uh, as I came out of global. Uh, at that time, I'd become the Patriot, um, and then I went to work for Baba. Uh, and after a couple of years, left and went to WCW, and then left and went back to Baba. So uh, the highlight of my career uh, was working for Baba. Uh, I come from a football background, so that stiff, snug style, it suited me just fine. And uh, you know, I was an offensive lineman, so I was accustomed to getting the first in the heads and, and being physical every play. So that's stiffer, snugger style suited me just fine, and I loved it. And I got to work with, I think, the greatest lineup of talent that I ever worked with in my life. When I worked in Japan, 
just on the American bus, you had Steve Williams, Dr. Death, Terry Gordon, Stan Hansen, uh, the Fantastics, Jackie Fulton, my partner. Uh, you had Abdul the Butcher. You had Dory Funk Jr. You had Dan Crawford and, and Doug Furness. And, and that's just a, that's a Hall of Fame lineup. And then you go to the Japanese bus and you got Jumbo Saluda, you got Baba, you got Masawa, you got Kabashi, you got Taiwei, Kawada, uh, Young Akiyama. And again, that's another Hall of Fame lineup there. So uh, just being a part of that company, when they were doing as good a business, if not better business than anybody in the world at that time, it was uh, it was a great thing to be a part of. Oh, and then going back to America, the um the GWF to me like you know besides the AWA, I really got introduced to you to the GWF. In my opinion, you was like you know they was trying to I, I don't know if they were, but I think you was like the focal point, like the whole Kogan of that organization, so to say. Did you have fun with GWF, even though it was like for a short run? Did you have a good time there? Oh yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I went to work for them. I, I flew out to Dallas for the very first TV taping. They were. Ever going to do, and I had no idea uh, what was going to transpire. I took my trooper gear with me because I thought that's what I was going to be doing. But literally just a few hours before we got to the building for our first TV taping, uh, Joe Tennessee and Bill Eady uh, called me and asked me if I would go down to Joe's room. We always stayed at the same hotel. So I went down to Joe's room, and there was Bill, there was Joe, and there was Bonnie Blackstone. And uh, they had a costume box, and they opened it up and pulled out a red, white, and blue mask, red, white, and blue trunks, red, white, and blue tights, red, white, and blue vest. They said, we got an idea. And they laid out the idea to me of the Patriot, and uh, I bought it. I, I was all in. And that night, when I went down the aisle to the ring there at the Sportatorium, the reaction from the crowd was phenomenal. That was the first time they'd ever seen that character. But their reaction let me know that we were on to something good. Okay. And uh, it took my career to a different level. Well, was you upset that you had to wear a mask? And, you know, I know there's a lot of constrictions from wearing a mask. Did you get used to it in the you know, first couple of matches? Well, you know, I wore a mask uh, before when I was working for Moolah. Uh, me and the guy I worked in the business with, uh, she had masks on us and we worked as the wrestling machines. Uh, when I first went to Mid-South and went to work for uh, Jerry, Jerry Lawler had the idea of putting the mask on me, called me the Dreamweaver. Oh. Uh, I did that for a few short weeks, and then later they teamed Scott Steiner and I together under white mask and white tights, and we were the wrestling machines. So I had been under the mask three other times, so I was pretty much used to it, and, and it didn't take a lot to get used to it again. Oh, okay, okay, and um, um, the like, um, your matches were like, you know, it was pretty much dominating. You was like sort of one of like the biggest guys there, and you know, you had great matches with Doug Gilbert. You had a lot of great matches, you know, Booker T and all the other guys that were there. Do you remember like any of like like um? Well, your major feud was with you know Doug Gilbert as a Dark Patriot. Take me back a little bit of that. Um, did you enjoy that little feud that you had, and with Bruce Pritchard and everything, everybody there? I did. It, it was good. Uh, it, it was uh, it was the focal point of the company, and, and you know they had decided they were going to you know push me as, a, as their top baby face. And uh, I had some other you know great matches and, and uh, angles with uh, with uh, uh, Buddy Landell, with uh, uh, Sam Lane, with Al Perez. Uh, you know the deal there for. Al, uh, I won the belt from Al, but yet his foot was on the rope, and I gave the belt back yeah. because I wasn't going to win under any type of circumstances like that. I wanted a clean win, 
and ended up winning the belt again. Uh, and then, of course, with, uh, with Doug. So all that was fun. And, of course, it's early in my career. Uh, you know, it was a, an exciting time to be a part of an up-and-coming company like the Global company, company that we thought uh, would have legs to go uh, at the end with the WWF, as they were called at the time. And WCW just unfortunately, they just didn't have the cash. They didn't have the deep pockets that those other two companies had. And they just could not sustain the initial success that we enjoyed. At the beginning, there was a, like a lot of going on. You, what, what pretty much was the fallout of the GWF, if if you know any of behind the scenes stuff? They just didn't have the money. Uh, you know, they just did not have the money to compete. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was, that was the bottom line. Or, you know, other than that, there was really no other reason. Yeah. Oh man. And then from there, you transitioned to WCW um, as the Patriot. You're, you know, the, the gimmick. I guess. From, even though they gave you that gimmick, I guess you owned the the Patriot basically, right? That was your, you know, that was yours basically. Once they gave that to you, right? Correct. Yeah. Um. How how did you feel starting WCW, then being transitioned into teaming up with Marcus Bagwell at Stars and Stripes? Well, I, I initially went in as a singles wrestler, um, and not long after I'd been there, they approached me about the idea of teaming me with Marcus, and I knew Marcus. From our GWS days, he worked as a handsome stranger, and uh, Marcus was impressive. He had talent, he was athletic, he had charisma, and um, there were a lot of good tag teams in WCW at that time when you take into consideration the Nasty Boys, Harlem Heat, uh, pretty wonderful with Paul Roman, Paul Orndorff, uh, uh, Jimmy Golden, Robert Fuller. Uh, there were a lot of good tag teams, and, and, and it was a lot of great tag team matches at that time. And so to add ourselves to that mix, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was enjoyable. I thought we did very well there. Bagwell and I, we won the belts twice. Yeah, you know, you had good matches, like you were saying, Harlem Heat. What I loved about you, it was almost like the Patriot was becoming, you know, different because, you know, instead of having the same tights, you know, you mixed up the tights a little bit. The mask was changed a little bit, you know. And I think you and Bagwell really gelled well together. Um, I don't remember, like, what happened. Did you guys separate? Is because you you left from there to WWF, correct? Or No, I went back to Japan. I had signed a three-year deal with WCW. And she worked at the time, and I knew Eric from my days in the AWA. He was our TV guy. Uh, he did our TV show for us, and uh, so I knew him from there. And uh, I just grew unhappy with being in WCW. Uh, they brought in Hogan and Savage and Beefcake from uh, WWF, and that changed the entire focus of the company. And it was no longer about the guys that were there before Hogan, Savage, and Beefcake. Now all the attention turned to Hogan, Savage, and Beefcake and their friends. And, uh, you know, so I, I was just, you know, a lot of the reasons. I just grew unhappy with the company, so I went to Bischoff, asked him if he would let me out with my remaining year, uh, that I had an opportunity to go back to Japan and work for Baba. And uh, he wouldn't let me out of my contract, so I just walked. And uh, I was supposed to be at a pay-per-view, uh, I think, in Tupelo, Mississippi, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the only person that knew that I wasn't going to be there was Bagwell. I felt like I owed it to my tag team partner to let him know. And uh, I told him, I said, look, I'm not going to be there. I'm going back to Japan. And, uh, and I did. So that was the end of my time in WCW. Oh, and then when you went back to Japan, you was there for um, a little while, right? You was there for a couple of years in Japan? Yeah, probably a couple of years. And then I got the opportunity to go to work for Vince. 
Yeah, and then um, how was that? It was like uh, going like it's like going from a a, a Dwayne Reed to a big Walmart, like going to the WWF or WWE that it is now. Well, really, it, 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 from a, a business standpoint, I mean, you know, it had all the glamour mm-hmm. uh, of the biggest promotion in the world, but uh, they didn't do any bigger business than all Japan did. I mean, all Japan was phenomenal, mm-hmm. the kind of business they were doing and the kind of matches and the work rate they had. I, I would have that probably above anybody, but, you know, Vince had that worldwide TV uh, appeal and uh, it was uh, it had the glitz and the glamour and uh, I had uh, I had talked with this before back in the early nineties about going to work there but it just never worked out and now was a chance to go to work for him so I was excited about it and it just the timing was perfect uh, to work right into that angle with Bret Hart and he was on his anti America campaign and of course here comes the Patriot. Wearing the flag, basically waving the flag, and the timing of it could have been better. Yeah. Let's work together. Yeah, you was really pushed to the moon, I thought. Like, with a victory over Bret Hart on Monday Night Raw was phenomenal. And then, you know, you have um, JR say, the Patriot beat Bret Hart, you know. And, you know, I'm saying, you know, you was already made if people didn't know who you was. I was like, oh, my God, the Patriot's on WWF. So, you know, you you know, you know, teamed up with Vader, and, you know, I think you had a good little run. But um, um, the injury really set you back from WWF, correct? Yeah, I had sustained those injuries prior to going to the WWF. I had sustained a very serious knee injury in Japan. Uh, uh, I've since had to have my knee replaced twice, but had a real bad knee injury there. And I've uh, had a real, real bad tricep injury in Japan as well. So I knew when I signed my contract with Vince in the WWF that I was probably on borrowed time. I'd signed a three-year deal. But uh, I really didn't have any hopes of being able to f- fulfill the three years of it because of the injuries and the way they were affecting my ability to work, uh, the way they limited me, the pain I was having to deal with. And, uh, and sure enough, they, they, they just shortened my career. Uh, I had a good run going there in the WWF, but my body just would not let me continue to go. And, uh, you know, I had a conference call with Vince and, and, and my orthopedic surgeon and and JR, and we all determined that, you know, I just was physically unable to continue to go. And uh, so, unfortunately, that ended my career. Wow. It's sad because, you know, it's like you look back and, you know, as you know, you know, as a fan, not I'm doing as a fan looking back, I'm like, oh man, it, you know, so much could have been done, but you know, you can't, you can't screw around with Mother Nature, you can't screw around with injuries. So, you know, it's it's you know, who knows what could have been though, but you know, your career is not, you know, wrestlers with dreams have a career like yours. So, you know, I, you know, I guess you know, it was meant for it to end. Um, getting into your documentary, the um, Dale Wilkes beat the man behind the mask. How did that come about? And first of all, congratulations because you you know you exceeded your goals, correct? Yeah, we did. Uh, we had a Kickstarter campaign, and our goal was to raise thirty five hundred dollars uh, from donations uh, of the wrestling fans, and uh, we far exceeded that. We came within, I think, about maybe seventy five bucks of reaching six thousand. And uh, so it was just phenomenal, the response that we got, the donations that we got from the fans, and I want to thank them for that. Really appreciate that, their participation, and uh, we're really looking forward to it. It should be released in maybe a couple of months, but it's going to cover my entire life, not just professional wrestling, but uh, from from the day I was born to where I'm at today, 
if there's anything in between, there'll be family members there, there'll be a lot of the guys that I wrestled with that have taken part in this, uh, Jackie Fulton, Bobby Fulton, George South, uh, Stan Hanson, Greg Gagne, Marcus Bagwell. You'll see all, all those guys um, in the documentary. Uh, you'll see some of the guys that I played football with, uh, including uh, a teammate of mine that won the Heisman Trophy in 1980, George Rogers. So George is a part of this as well. So it's uh, Michael Elliott has done this at Elbow Docks, and he just does great work. And uh, I think that this will be his best one yet. And we're very excited about it, and it should be available uh, for the fans to purchase in about six to eight weeks. Um, tell me a little about it because you definitely go into details about your, you know, your your drug addiction and the pain, pain, you know, the pills addiction. Um, tell me a little bit about that. I know you talked about it in numerous podcasts, but um, delve a little bit into that. Like, um, how did you was led to that? Well, it started out innocently enough, as I'm sure it did with every guy that I worked with that fell victim to that. And uh, I'm fortunate that I got out of it with my wife. Uh, the Lord spared my life, but so many of the guys that I worked with didn't get out of it alive. It took their life, and it cost them the ultimate, the ultimate, you know, prize. It just took their life. And it's not that easy enough. You're a professional wrestler. You're in the spotlight. Uh, you're doing what you dreamed to do. You're doing what you sacrificed. You know, we worked so hard to get there. And um, you... You deal with injuries because that's a part of that business. It's a, you know, even though we know uh, the outcome, uh, still it's very physical and it's very hard on your body. And you start having to deal with injuries. And the only way you can deal with it and continue to work uh, at the level you need to work at is to medicate yourself. And it starts out innocent enough with a couple of pain pills to help you get through the match so you can go out and perform the way you need to. And the next thing you know, it has ballooned, a ballooned and mushroomed in to just a full-blown addiction. And what started for me is two pills before a match one night to be able to work and to continue to provide for my family and live my dream out eventually ended up being 120 pain pills a day. And uh, that didn't take into consideration the other pills that I was taking, the muscle relaxers, the sleeping pills, What made you think, like, you know, you the, the it's an astronomical amount of pills you was taking, well, like, why why didn't you think, you know, like, you're here and a lot of other wrestlers are not? Like, what do you think it was? Well, you don't think that way when, when addiction is, is controlling your every thought. Uh, you know, you don't think that that could happen to me. All you're worried about is how am I going to get the 120 pain pills I'm going to need tomorrow? Uh, you know, how am I going to cop? another 120 pain pills the next day. And you don't think clear when you're an addict and when you're, uh, you know, in the midst of that addiction. And uh, obviously you don't think clear. You do things that are dangerous. You do things that are illegal. Uh, you do things that could cost you your life. But uh, 
so you're not able to think clearly and correctly. What, what made you kick the habit? What was it that what was what was the awakening that you had, or like was it some what, what was it basically that? Well, uh, being put in the South Carolina Department of Corrections for eighteen months, yeah, and I served I served eleven months of that eighteen months, and uh, you can't get them in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you could, but I didn't have, <laughs> have access to them, and yeah. uh, I didn't want them uh, at that point in time. Uh, after a while, you go through some sickness because you have to sort of cold turkey off those things to a certain extent, um, and uh, you get clear-headed, and you're able to think properly and, and with a clear mind, and, and uh, I realized that I had made a mess of my life, doing things my way, and uh, and landed me in prison. It cost me my freedom, it cost me my family, it cost me my finances, and uh, my financial uh, well-being, and it had taken everything away from me. And I realized that in order for me to be able to put my life back together, I was going to have to look to someone that had far more power than I did. And I just called out and asked the Lord to help me. I, I'd given my life to the Lord as a, as a, as a young man, 11 years old, and uh, obviously had grown distant from the Lord uh, with all this going on in my life. But I fell back on that relationship with the Lord and turned my life back over to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. The only way I can make it straight and put it back together is to give it to you, and you do it for me. And uh, thankfully, he did. And uh, there's redemption there. We serve a good God. He's a God that's uh, gracious and merciful and forgiving. And I'm very thankful for that. Hmm. Did, did did you became born again in, Christ, in, in, in prison? Or how how did this come about? No, I, I, I'd given my life to the Lord uh, when I was 11 years old. 11 years old. Okay. And I, firm, I, I firmly believe that uh, we serve a perfect God. And uh, he had a perfect son that gave his life on the cross for us. And it's a perfect salvation. There's nothing I can do to merit that salvation. But once the Lord saves me, there's nothing I can do to lose it either. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I had just grown cold and indifferent. I allowed, allowed sin into my life to just separated me from the Lord. But I rededicated my life to the Lord while in prison. Are you are are you more are are you going more to church now and are you more into the Bible now than you was back then? Or is it is it is it something that you can't really explain or Oh no, it's a, it's a, it's a part of my everyday life. It has to be. Okay. In order to be a, in order to be a good athlete, you got to train and eat right every day, not just some of the time. And in order to be a good Christian and serve the Lord the way we need to, it's got to be something that's a part part of our life daily through prayer, through reading, and, and through, through just giving your life to Him and, and turning it over to Him and saying, Lord, I'm incapable of living this. I'm putting it into Your hands, and I'll live my life through You. And so it has to be a daily thing. Do you have, you know, as being a you know recovering addict, do you get temptations, or is it something that's really pretty much out of your mind? Or no, I, I can say that it's pretty much something that I've turned over to the Lord, and, and uh, you know, there are those few occasions when it might rear its ugly head, but again, you just turn it over to the Lord and and uh, you know let Him handle it, but. Uh, for the most part, it, 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 it very seldom does it, does it bother me. It's a, 
it's amazing. And then also in the documentary, you definitely delve into all this and you talk about your NFL career and your parents are in it. Um, how was it actually shooting it? And did you have to like, you know, how did like your parents react and re- reliving all this stuff? Was it like kind of hard to do on the documentary? Well, my mom uh, was the one that, that, that we had in, in it, and yeah, it was tough for her to relive those painful times. Uh, that's a mother yeah. having to watch her son go through addiction and the horrible effects it had on her. That's a mother that had to go visit her son in prison. So it was very emotional for her to have to relive that. But uh, you know, she's happy that uh, her son's no longer living his life that way, and, and you know, he's a different son now. It has been for. For 12 years. Two more questions for you, Dell. You know, I, I guess you talked about it before, about the Patriot character, you know, of Tom Brandy using the gimmick and stuff like that, and I know you have no idea about it. Do you feel he should be reprimanded for that, and that's your gimmick? Do you have anything on paper or something like that? Like, you know, because it's pretty much not fair if it's, you know, your gimmick. You well, know? he has taken, he has basically stolen my identity. Uh... I guess I'm the best thing that happened to Tom because, I mean, I don't mean it to be cruel, I don't mean it to be harsh, but it's a fact. Tom had a mediocre career at best. I mean, at best, he had a mediocre career. And um, this, I guess, is the best thing that's ever happened in his career. And he's literally, not only does he wrestle as the Patriot, present himself as the Patriot, but he, I guess, several years ago had a shoot interview done and, and the cover of that DVD was a picture of me, not a picture of Tom, but a picture of me. He sells pictures of me. He uses pictures of me. And then he has stolen my bio. Uh, I saw where, you know, he says that he wrestled in the AWA, the GWF, WCW, All Japan, WWF World. I don't know that he did any of those things. He very briefly came over and worked in all Japan for us, maybe one or two tours. He didn't fit in. He couldn't work the style, so they never brought him back. But he has taken my bio and claimed it as his own. And I've talked to a lot of the fans recently that have been at shows where the Patriot was working, and they were suspicious. So approaching Tom, they asked him, are you Dale Wilkes? And the response they got was, yeah, I'm Dale Wilkes. So it's very pathetic. It really is. It's just a pathetic thing to, to think that you can't establish yourself as a professional wrestler on a character that you can base your career on and establish your career on, but you've got to do it on the back of somebody else that paid heavily. I mean, I literally sacrificed good health. I gave of my body. I mean, I, I, I struggle today to get around to walk and to, to get up and down. And I did it all for that character and for my career pro wrestling and would gladly do it again. And it's just, I think it's shameful for the guy to, to just claim that that's him now. And, uh, and, and, and I've let everybody know, if you see the Patriot in the ring wrestling, then you know it's not me. Mm-hmm. I haven't been in the ring but one time in 15 years. I'm physically unable to do that. So if you see the Patriot being advertised anywhere, and he's going to wrestle, he's going to work, he's going to get in the ring, that's all you need to know, that it's not me. Yeah. And um, But I think it's just totally disgusting. But, you know, I mean, uh, what am I going to gain out of suiting him or, or anything like that? I mean, he's working independent shows, for goodness sake. Yeah. You know, so it's just shameful.
I, know, I just can't believe people can't doesn't doesn't know that he's not Dale Wilkes unless it's like a lot of kids coming up to him or older guys who you know who don't know um, how you look like like there's no way that they would there's different body types there's no way that they could I don't, I don't know I don't know how he gets away with it but it's just a travesty I don't know. Well, I, I guess there's a lot of people that haven't heard me on podcast or you know they can go to my Facebook page Dale Wilkes or Dale the Patriot Wilkes or. Uh, uh, at Bill Wilkes on my Twitter account. And, um, you know, if you'll tune into those things, uh, you'll definitely get smartened up. But, uh, you know, I, I think now the word's starting to get out after I, I think I've done about 30 podcasts. And, <laughs> wow. Uh, it's, been, it's been discussed on many of them, so hopefully the word's getting out and exposing the guy for the fall that he is. Yeah, definitely. And speaking a little bit about that, let me ask that. You've done like a lot of podcasting, you know, promote the documentary and definitely tell your story. How is it doing like, you know, interviews after interviews and just almost, you know, I guess rehashing the same stories probably on different podcasts or people talking to you like differently, you know, because I know you've done Shining Wizards, you've done the Stone Cold one. Um, Do you feel like um you said everything you needed to say in different podcasts or there's things you haven't really talked about that you wanted to talk about or... Well, I mean, in, in, in a lot of the podcasts, the same, you know, a lot of the same things have been covered, but that's to be expected. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, everyone's different in, in its own unique way. And, uh, listen, that's one thing I never get tired of talking about. There, there's a, there's probably three or four things that I can talk about any day, at any time. <laughs> Obviously, the Lord and how good He's been to me. Uh, I could talk college football all day long. I could talk pro wrestling all day long on football all day long. So it's never it's never uh, an issue. I enjoy talking about pro wrestling as much as anybody. So I've enjoyed being on each and every podcast. I'm thankful that, that you and all the others um, have thought enough of me to invite me on your podcast. And, uh, you know, it doesn't get old. Yeah, definitely can't wait. Definitely fans have got to pick this up. Um, the man behind the mask with Del Wilkes. Del, final question I want to ask you. Um, I guess you, you know, you know, like, unless you're living under a rock, you heard about the whole Hogan situation and, um, everything that's going down. Um, what's your two cent on the situation? Well, I was thinking about that today and I, and I come very close to putting something out on Twitter. And to everybody that's putting the boots to Hogan, I would just remind you of this. The Bible says he without sin cast the first stone. And I think if we look at it that way, we'd quit throwing stones. Because each and every one of us has done things that we regret. We've said things that we regret. Each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. He's not the only person that's ever said something that he wished he could take back. Mm-hmm. So I just wish that everybody would keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. I know he feels bad about what he said and, and the things that he said, and, and they're bad. But... We're all imperfect people, and we do things. We make mistakes. So I wish people would keep that in mind. This man has done a lot for our business. He's basically made it what it is today. And a lot of people that are putting the boots to him now loved him when he was on top. And uh, just keep that in mind, okay? He's he's a human being, and we're human beings. And and I heard a pastor of mine say something one time that, that really stuck with me. And, and I constantly try to remind people of this. Even the best of men are just men at best. We're people that, that sin. We're fragile, we're frail, and we all make mistakes. So, so keep that in mind. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, that's, you know, I'm saying, you know, I'm, I, 
it's it, it's it's just funny because it was like a, a private conversation that got exposed, and you know, it's just from something that happened eight years ago, and you know, you know, and you know, it's like anything you say. It's, it comes back, you know, and then, you know, everything just got taken away from him. It's just, it's sad. It's just sad, you know? It, it is. And I'm going to say this, and, and uh, whatever people think, so be it. But there's particular language, particular words that if you say them, then you're, basically you're destroyed. Mm-hmm. But yet there's a, there's a certain segment of our society that uses that word on a daily basis. And if it's bad for one group of people to say it, then it should be just as bad for another group of people to say it. If the word is so offensive, then nobody needs to say it. And I mean nobody. The other guys, there's a certain segment that, 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 that can say it and they get away with it. But if it's that offensive, then nobody needs to say it. Yeah. It needs to be eliminated from everyone's vocabulary. And I mean everybody. I'm saying, are, are, are you talking about, like, the way how, like, let's say, uh, you know, you know, as, as rappers or whatever, they'll say, you know, you know, a greeting, like, you know, you know, without the E-R word, but they use the A, you know? Yeah. That, 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 that's nonsense. That is yeah. absolute yeah. nonsense. That just, that kicks me off. If it's an offensive word, it doesn't matter how you pronounce it or how you spell it. I work with some guys who work for the black guys, and they're great guys. Mm-hmm. In their communication, in their communication with each other, they throw that word around like a volleyball. <laughs> and yeah. so, if it, it's bad for for anybody to say it, for Hulk Hogan, for me or anybody, yeah. then they don't need to say it. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if it's a term of endearment, if it's an offensive term, and, and somebody can have their career destroyed over it, then nobody needs to say it. It needs to be this thing needs to be dealt with equally across the board. Exactly, exactly. You know, stuff like that, you know, it, it, it gets out. But, you know, you know, you know, maybe may, maybe this is a spotlight on it and maybe something will happen from this, you know. Hopefully something good will happen from this, you know. You know, every every dark cloud there's a silver lining. So, you know, who knows what the future holds for Hulk Hogan. But, you know, hopefully everything will work out what's meant to be. Yeah, I agree. Um, Del, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And definitely plug your social media and plug everything that you're on. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, at Del Wilkes, uh, Twitter, and then, of course, uh, Del Wilkes on Facebook, and then Del the Patriot Wilkes. My wife has done a great job of, of setting up these accounts for me. I know absolutely nothing about social media. <laughs> I'm basically backwards when it comes to it. But uh, she's done a great job of helping me out and uh, getting me plugged into these things because they are very important. They're a part of our life, and they're tools that we can use. So, uh, I'm thankful she has educated me. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, have do you learn? Have you learned a little bit now about like how to use Twitter and all that stuff? Or yeah, I have. As a matter of fact, uh, you mentioned a while ago doing Austin's podcast. Austin was the one who actually <laughs> yeah. walked, me, walked me through Twitter and, and told me the importance of setting up an account. And then show you how dumb I am with it. I opened up my Twitter account and I had no profile picture up there. And so he, he sent me a text. And he said, you need to get that egg off your profile picture. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what does he mean, egg? And I went to my wife and I said, hey, I said, I just got this text from Steve and said, eggs don't sell documentaries. You need to put a picture up there. And she helped explain that to me. And I got to give Steve a lot of credit for me. He patiently sort of walked me through the steps of Twitter, how to get it started, how to set it up. So very thankful to that. And I did get that egg down and put a picture up on it. 
Yeah. And behind every um, man, every patriot, there's always a successful wife right behind them. Your rock, your wife. Um, tell me how much your wife has been to you. Oh, it, it's, it's a great story, Kathy, and I met uh, in 1977 at a Christian youth camp. Wow. And um, we were, uh, I guess I was 15, she was 16 at the time, and we were boy, boyfriend and girlfriend for one summer. And uh, we were living within Georgia at the time when the camp was held. And uh, my dad shortly thereafter moved our family back to South Carolina, where we were originally from. So Kathy and I lost contact with each other. Uh, she got married and went her own way, and I eventually got married later on and went my own way. Well, I went back to that town in Georgia two and a half years ago to visit a buddy of mine, and I ran into Kathy. She'd been divorced for about 10 years. I'd been divorced for a long time, and we ran into each other accidentally on a Sunday morning. We started texting each other, and within 30 days we were married. So uh, it's a neat story. Only God can do this, man. Only God can do this. Wow. It's an amazing That's story. That's exactly right, yeah. Uh, Dale, thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me this time, and I look forward to seeing the DVD. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you having me on. Not a problem. I hope everybody out there was intellectually stimulated by way of mobile devices. Have a good one. The Atomic Podcast, where we blow up the news.